Welcome to Directly Correct, a people podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Ethan Burris. Today is a pretty fun day, actually. Um, so we have promotion and tenure decisions that are uh, have come down from the tower, and so we had we put up uh, nine different candidates for promotion. And so I, this morning, I mostly spent time delivering some really good news. So it's been a fun day. That's got to be like the, I don't know how often you do that, but that's got to be like the best day of the year. What Once a year. So we, it's definitely something that's cherished. That's awesome. Anybody, I mean, I don't want to like name any names like publicly, but anybody I would know that got a good decision? Um, so we, we didn't have any folks in the management department, which would okay. you know, kind of coincide with uh, more on the HR side, but we, we did have uh, a couple people in what's called business government and society. And so uh, one of them does some fascinating research on uh, what we call non-market strategy. So if you think about, you know, strategy of different organizations, a lot of it has to do with, you know, superior products that have a premium price or low cost and, you know, uh, low margins, but high volume. Or yeah. he looks at kind of non-market strategy. And so everything with government and dark money and, you know, corporate lobbying and stuff like that, that will give companies a little bit of a leg up in um, you know, the rules of the land in order to do well in the, in the marketplace. And so um, not exactly you know, on the people analytics and HR side, but really fascinating stuff. That is really fascinating. I've never even heard of what any of that. I mean, I guess like you, you hear about like dark money and politics and stuff like that, but that's super interesting. So are, are you familiar with their research? I don't, I don't like put you on the spot and be like, hey, tell me about someone else's research that you didn't do. But um, I don't know. Do you have any like interesting tidbits from that? Uh, so, so like one example was how companies responded to and, and then talked about publicly their response to the onset of, of COVID. And so you can think about companies and having, you know, different political ideology leanings, especially among CEOs and, and top mm-hmm. executives. Well, that absolutely impacted how they talked about the virus at the, you know, in the middle of 2020. It yeah. impacted uh, their policies internally in terms of how quick they were to kind of shut things down or quick to go to remote or hybrid, and then how quickly they, you know, encouraged folks to return to office. And so, you know, that's not non-market strategy in terms of success in the marketplace, like, you know, um, getting laws passed in such a way that sets your products up for, you know, advantaged success in, um, in that regard. But it is how, you know, ideologies of people who run these large organizations then shape the way they think about social policy, which then yeah. impacts how they manage their people internally. And of course, this has all sorts of implications for things like workplace safety and um, work from home policies and turnover among employees and stuff like that. That is so wild. Again, yeah. When one of the things that I've kind of thought about as my career has progressed is because like when I was younger in my career, I always assumed like the chief executive had like godlike powers at an organization. And one of the things that you realize as you mature and you get more seniority in organizations is how little power an executive ends up really having. But what you're saying actually brings a whole new layer to it, which is like policy-driven decisions. And it's kind of like the butterfly flaps its wings in China and creates a tornado in Texas. 
Yeah. Like these little things can have huge consequences on a policy level for downstream for their organizations. That's super interesting. Okay. So yeah. Scott's having Scott's having trouble logging in. I'm he's texting me back and forth. I'd say on a lot of these, I mean, this is a, it's actually a pretty good debate among academics that go back almost close to 50 years now, where they try and look at you know what is the impact of a singular leader on you know the not only policies but the performance of organizations as a whole. Yeah. And you know, there's there's always a sizable effect. How much or little kind of varies a bit. Mm -hmm. um, but the you know the largest impact of these singular leaders is not you know their force of personality or the things that they say or do. It's the structures that they put in place and the investment decisions that they make, and yeah. you know some of these larger policies that ends up having a, a ripple effect about the organization. That's that's really interesting, Ethan. Well. If, if you're okay with it, I'm just going to go for it as if Scott's not going to join. And if he does join, then we'll just take it as a little bit of lanyap, a little something extra. Sure. So um, I did want to introduce you really quickly uh, for the audience. Um, so uh, Dr. Ethan Burris, professor of management at, um, at the Macomb School of Business at University of Texas at Austin. I actually really love the name of your professorship, King Ranch Chair of Prof Professor of Management and the Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. Now, when I think of ranch in Texas, I assume salad dressing. <laughs> I'm assuming King Ranch is not the king of ranch salad dressing. So who is King Ranch? So <clears throat> there's a, a ranch out in West Texas. And really what this means is the, the kings. So who the family that owns the ranch sometime 20, 30, 40 years ago, either donated part of that property or donated something financially to the business school. And now they have an endowment uh, that's named after them. And uh, for whatever reason, yours truly is the one who holds that endowment for the time being. So uh, <laughs> awesome. I, right. I, guess, I know you got the your other side your to that is the other side of that is um, there's a, there is a thing called the King Ranch casserole. And that's also pretty good, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. We'll have to put a link to whatever that is in the show notes. Um, well, so, and you, you also got your PhD in management from Cornell and you're, you've served as a visiting scholar at both Google and Microsoft. And maybe that can kind of tee us up to some of the things that we wanted to talk about today, because I know you and I have chatted in the past about your research on psychological safety, but especially um, employee voice as a subset of that. Do you mind just kind of introducing those concepts to our audience if they're not familiar, and then maybe talk about some of your interesting research that you've either done in academia or in practice um, sure. using that that work. Yeah. Um, so for, let's see, almost 20 years now, um, I've studied this concept that I call employee voice. Um, in short, it's what leads employees to speak up in organizations. So are you having honest and candid conversations with your boss and with senior leaders about, you know, things that are going on? So uh, opportunities for improvement. What new ideas do you have for changes in policy and procedures, routines, new product ideas, new services, new ways of collaborating and interacting? Or, you know, problems, you know, here are issues that we need help and to, to resolve. And so, you know, part of my research is, you know, kind of on the employee side, so their psychology, how they make sense for how safe it is to speak up and whether it's worthwhile to do so. 
Um, but the, you know, the other part of my research is, you know, the other side of that coin. So how managers respond to and kind of receive that feedback. Um, what do they do with it? Um, do folks kind of largely ignore it? Is it, does it feel critical or criticizing when someone, you know, speaks up in challenging ways to you for the things that you created or in, are in charge of implementing? Um, you know, and then, you know, what, what happens kind of on down the line? Um, and so, you know, through, through this research, through, uh, it, some of it's very tactical. So if you look at the employee side, um, what are ways for employees to really feel safer? So are there tactics they can, that they can engage in um, that helps them to not get reamed out by speaking the truth to their boss? Or sets up a better chance of success. Like, how do you actually sell your ideas in a way that your boss will really attend to them and do something functionally and different inside the organization? Um, you know, and then the other part is, as an organization, are there policies that you can set up? Are there structures for how you solicit voice that enables your people to feel heard? And for you to actually take advantage of some of the insights that they have to better your organization in some way. Well, the way I've kind of distilled it down myself, Ethan, and you can feel free to take issue with this, but I've I've I love this framework of seeing like if you wanted to know if your employees felt psychologically safe, the key indicator for me is do they feel like they could speak up if they disagree about something? Right. That to me seems like the simplest way of putting it. And so I, I've cited your work a few times in a few of my articles, but I believe, haven't you done some of this research in industry as well to see like the efficacy of it for organizations? Yeah, so actually most, I think all of my research is uh, field partnerships. So I, I yeah. partner with, uh, with companies. Um, we usually end up doing, you know, some set of interviews just to kind of get familiar with the culture and the context and, you know, th those types of employees. And then we pair that with a number of surveys that go out to kind of capture, you know, different um, behaviors as it relates to voice or different kind of nuances there. And so this is a, a couple of, of examples about why organizations, at least for me, why I think they should care about it is for one, it, it impacts kind of core performance outcomes for, you know, across a wide variety of types of employees and types of organizations. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, we went into a, a large insurance company. And we surveyed a number of their sales employees. So these are folks that, you know, if you imagine um, taking out an automobile insurance policy or a home insurance policy, these are folks on the, the phone um, who would kind of help walk through uh, the underwriting process, get, you know, a quote, give, um, give you a, a price point, and then ultimately convert you into a sale. And what we found is um, even among those sales employees, and that's usually work that is done kind of individually, when people speak up to their boss, that had a positive impact on their sales performance. So it increased sales performance by about 12 to 15%. Why? Well, you know, your boss is the one person with power and authority to take action. And so if you're going to um, be able to speak up to someone who can actually be helpful to you in addressing the issues that you raise, then they can take action and stuff actually gets better. Um, ironically, what we also found is if you speak sideways to your colleagues, something that almost everyone does, right? So 
if you if you have a problem at work, the first thing you do is turn to your colleague and start bitching about all the craziness that's going on. And what we found is, well, that bitching can be nice, like it, it gets stuff off your chest, but if it doesn't travel to someone who can actually take action on the problem at hand, then it's actually worse than if you never went to your colleague in the first place. Like it actually makes performance worse. Oh, please, please preach that. I, I have been saying this for you. It's like doing, like listening to people and then doing nothing is so much worse than not listening at all. I, I could not agree more, Ethan. But speaking of speaking up, Scott was able to join us. And so he's going to be able to speak up. And I don't know if you know this, Ethan, but Scott was also a Longhorn uh, uh, there in we go. undergrad days. What's so, up? Uh, yeah. What's up? Yeah. Sorry for the technical difficulties. You know, life in a tech company. Other people have been saying that they've had uh, issues with the VPN today. So it's probably just going around. But hey, man, it's great to meet you. It's great to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, Scott. How, how do you two know each other? How do you and Cole have you already covered this? Apologies for being late. Um, not really, but uh, it's no big deal. Um, so I, I reached out to Ethan a few years ago to do some research partnerships when I was at a prior organization because I was so interested in his research, um, specifically with a particular vendor and how that vendor could use um, their data to augment employee voice. And so I've been a fan of his for a little while. But um, well, Ethan, you're you're down in Austin. What what's it like living in Austin lately? I mean, how how crazy has that been over the last few years? Uh, so I've been down here uh, almost 17, 18 years. The the city is completely different. Uh, the skyline is different. It seems to get overhauled about every two or three years with another skyscraper going up. And um, you know, the city's really blossomed and 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 grown. It's nice to have South by uh, back. We'll be in full force here in about another two three weeks. Um, so the city will turn upside down then, and it's just a fun place to be. Um, food is great. Anytime you go out on the weekend, I don't care where you are across downtown, there's always some music thing going on. It's it's just a fun place. I, I miss Austin so much. I, I lived there for probably like 14 years in total from moving there and moving back and et cetera. And like, you're so right. The, the skyline is just completely different. Now we got like an influx of a whole bunch of new tech talent all this sort of stuff and you're at uh mccombs business school right right in the heart of the ut camp it's like actually the hot corner i love that place so much i love it the hot corner i can remember that one and start <laughs> <to it> that <laughs> but do you have the opportunity to work with other tech companies in austin uh yeah i've worked with several in fact um so amd so summer semi national instruments um, Google, both Google and Microsoft have uh, campuses here as, as well. Um, you know, one of the nice things uh, about Austin is not only is the university here and the state legislature, but as you mentioned, we have a lot of very progressive companies that end up kind of rolling through town because a lot of people like to live um, in a place that's super fun. And so um, the last several years, I've also uh, organized a, a, a meetup around people analytics professionals. I, I think, um, you know, Cole, you've, you've been down here as well. Yeah. You know, you guys got, got, got it going on. I love it. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's a nice way to connect. And there's obviously just a, a ton of tech firms that are very interested in, in these types of issues. And so, you know, we get together um, probably four or five times a year and, and discuss uh, a, a few topics that seem to be top of mind. 
you know, I, I heard someone talking the other day and like, you're just like kind of a gut check. See, see if this uh, um, uh, resonates. They essentially said that there's sort of three different tracks in working for a tech company. So one track is like you work for a non-tech company, but in a tech role. In this case, you're betting on the company needs your services, you as an individual. Yep. If you work for like one of the big five to 10 tech companies, say like kind of like me uh, in my organization, you're essentially betting on the team to actually get funding and do important work and this sort of thing. And if you are at a startup, kind of like Cole, you're essentially betting on the success of the organization as a whole. Mm -hmm. Is this essentially what you see as well? Yeah. So um, like some of our, some of my research partners have been in companies like Whole Foods mm -hmm. and, you know, that's obviously a, a, a grocery chain. Um, they're, Bread and butter is literally bread and butter. Yet <laughs> the roles that people analytics folks take in that is very tech focused. I mean, imagine trying to push out a survey to well over a hundred thousand employees, and um, not all of which have access to the internet routinely, and you know, kind of desk jobs and right. uh, behind cubicles, and then you know, taking that feedback, assembling it, pushing it out to those stores, store by store, and then kind of um, figuring out what to do with that information. Am I, did I cut out? No, no, you're, you're great. Um, so, you know, those, those are roles that are incredibly tech heavy. I, we also have, um, so, uh, Cole, you mentioned one of the titles. I'm the Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. What, what that means is I'm in charge of kind of the academic side of the house for Macomb. So roughly about 300 faculty and then all of our programs, undergrad, all of our graduate programs, executive education. So, um, you know, apart from being the researcher and doing my own research, I'm also exposed to a lot of our other faculty. So we have a faculty member in the operations and supply chain group who also um, uh, works with companies and with Whole Foods as an example. And they, they use a lot of technology for their supply chain to understand pricing in order to manage that supply chain a bit better and to ensure that there's you know, reduced food waste um, and they, they can actually get their product um, sold and to customers. So it's, yeah, that, that blend of you know, tech inside a conventionally non-tech company, uh, we place a ton of students in that way. And I, it's, it's, a, it's a huge part of the ecosystem. Well, what a great, what a great spot for you to be in as well, to have like a purview over all these different aspects. And like you talk about just like from a like IO perspective, uh, there's so many avenues that you can go in from like, uh, you know, understanding the pricing model to understanding like the value of a long-term uh, customer relationship, all these sort of things can be applied. Yep. So now you're starting to go from supply chain and operations over to marketing and <laughs> customer lifetime value. Like, yeah, I mean, there's all these different elements and, um, you know, part of being a faculty member is obviously you have deep expertise in like one small sliver of the world. Right. Uh, but in this role, I really do have exposure to a lot of different folks across a wide variety of different disciplines that really matter for business. Um, we have some great folks in, for instance, our uh, statistics and decision sciences groups that develop uh, algorithms to help with hiring processes and reduce bias in hiring. You know, there's just super fun stories like that about how we're 
um, tackling some issues that every organization is really facing. Well, I wanted to pivot a little bit, Ethan, because although sometimes academics have a very narrow focus, I find that you have quite a breadth in the things that you've you've worked on, one of which is working with NBA organizations and a passion mm-hmm. doing sports analytics. Do you want to kind of talk to us a little bit about that? Because I imagine there's a wide swath of people who are interested in that space. Yep. Uh, so I'll kind of give two stories with it. So the the first um, is about a, a person with a PhD in geography. And it's kind of a weird place to start. Okay. Um, he worked at Michigan State for a couple of years, eventually found his way to Harvard as a, as a visiting faculty member there. And, you know, a lot of research that goes on for a person in PhD in geography is obviously maps. So he would map out um, like food ghettos in different cities, uh, political maps, stuff like that. Um, But he was also a huge basketball fan. So all of a sudden he started mapping his interest in geography with uh, the sports world. And um, this is about 10 years ago now, he created uh, one of those heat maps uh, of shot charts in basketball. Uh, It got picked up by the New York Times and all of a sudden his world just blew up. So he ended up quitting academia, um, started writing for ESPN, eventually moved down to Austin, uh, worked for the San Antonio Spurs, which is where I met him. So uh, this is, his name's Kirk Goldsberry. Uh, he ran analytics for the Spurs for about four years, but still kind of had that itch to teach and to get, you know, hang out with students and do some research as well. Uh, so I was able to twist his arm and um, he's been working here in McCombs for a couple of years both teaching sports analytics, and then he and I have started up a number of research projects in sports analytics. Um, so why am I interested in it? It's kind of the second part of the story. Um, if you look at IO or management research going back 100 years, at its core, the questions we try and ask are, how to assemble the right talent, how, much to, how to motivate <laughs> them, how to build teams, um, how to reward them and compensate them, how to know when to let talent go or when to try and retain talent. Well, these are all the same questions that Moneyball sensationalized you know, 20 plus years ago and that every sports team right now is deeply embedded in trying to answer. And so trying to marry what we know from management research and IO research going back decades to some of the challenges that they're facing on the basketball court or football field or what have you, those are the very things that we're starting to unpack. So just a couple examples of um, projects that are going on. Uh, I have one that is looking at uh, coaching successions, like what, what actually predicts success among NBA coaches. Every year, there's about 30 teams in the NBA, roughly about 10 of them have some sort of transition among their head coaches. And to frame sort of the business problem, that is 10 billionaires yeah. as owners of those teams that are making investment decisions of probably 40 to $50 million. By the time you have head coach, assistant coaches, other training and staff, and by and large, they don't do it all that well. Um, the average tenure of an NBA coach <laughs> is less than three years. Um, there's not much market of success if you have some turnover there. And so um, 
the models that are typically used for executive succession, you know, some of the big headhunting firms that advise uh, owners in this, the, they'll, their models are pretty kind of straightforward. Let's look at elements of a coach's resume, maybe a little bit about their personality or experience on the offense or defensive side of, of, of the house. And then, you know, that sort of will predict success or not. Well, management research, um, looking at CEO succession among Fortune 1000 firms, those kind of main effect models are not very predictive of executive success. Really? You have to match those characteristics of CEOs with the characteristics of the firm. So just as one very quick example, one of the biggest decisions that for-profit firms face is in executive succession is do you hire from within an internal hire? Or do you hire from the outside? Do you get a CEO from somewhere else? Well, it's not that one or the other is always better. It depends on the organization. Is the organization very successful and the CEO is going out you know, on high? Or is it a dumpster fire and you need a lot of change, <laughs> right? So like that kind of example changes the relationship between an internal versus external hire on success. So we're looking at many of those types of contingencies on different features or characteristics of the teams and how that matches characteristics and features of the coach to then predict success among uh, in, in the subsequent seasons. Well, the Longhorns really could use your help when they hired Shaka Smart several years ago. You're, you're on campus at that time. But I, I love this idea of... Uh, of sports because like the the relationships are very clear there's a clear outcome that you're trying to drive that isn't really present in businesses you know this criterion problem is much simpler uh plus like everything's just like shrunk down like you said like team dynamics recruiting selection like how you throwing people on the floor together all these sort of things but like to your point like when you come to like a coaching decision that you're only making like once every three hopefully much less freely than that it's a high risk, high reward sort of situation. So you got to get it right beyond just, I like this guy, <laughs> or I think he's going to do great. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, when, when I talk about some of these examples inside the classroom, you know, there's certain people that love sports. And so they're bought in right away, which is great. Right. And if there's anything we know about us Longhorns is like, this is a sports university through and through. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, sports is also a big business. And getting, getting these, bigger, yeah, these decisions right is absolutely vital to the financial success of these firms, firms, these teams, right? And so um, there is, as I said, th these analytics are not only important just because it's fun to talk about, you know, who's going to be the next Greg Popovich of the NBA, but it's also really um, important and vital for, you know, the, the owners and the success of the league. So I, I've got a question. Did you watch the the series, the last dance on Michael Jordan's career um, back with the of course Bulls? I did. So, so I grew up in Indiana. So <laughs> basketball is like through and through in my blood. I went to Bobby Knight basketball camp as a kid. Oh, wow. You uh, survived. Those, those uh, yeah, I just survived. Um, so those, yeah, that that series, The Last Dance, I loved every part of it. So I have, a, I have an analytics related question then related to the series, The Last Dance. All right. Because one of the running themes of the the series was, was it Michael Jordan that made the team successful 
was it uh, Phil, the coach that made it successful, mm. or was it Jerry Krause, the GM, who 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 thought it was the organization that made it wasn't the team, it wasn't Michael Jordan, it was the organization that won championships. So, in your perspective, who's right? Who who was the reason <laughs> why the Bulls were so good? <clears throat> uh, thanks for that very pointed question, Cole. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's a bit of a cop-out, but the answer is it's really hard to disentangle those things. Um, yeah. So I'll give a couple of research-backed examples. My favorite papers is by a guy named uh, Boris Groisberg. He's at, at uh, Harvard uh, Business School. And he studies essentially organizations who chase stars. So if you're going to try and poach someone to work at your startup or work at your large tech firm, do you go after someone that is unequivocally the star employee of their other organization? Mm-hmm. And then the question you want to answer there is, do you capture everything that makes them a star at that place in your own institution? So you can reframe this in terms of the last dance. Is it Jerry Krause constructing the team? Not so much stars. I mean, picking Michael Jordan is great, but it's also the rest of the organization, it's the rest of the team that makes us successful. Is it the coach and the way that Phil Jackson kind of? So it's Pittman, it's Pippen and Rodman in the acquisitions <laughs> of those, not the Jordan. Is that the correct? Uh... Or is it Jordan by him uh, by himself? Okay. Um, and so it, it does help to have three Hall of Famers on one team, right? It does, and you know the best basketball player to set feet on this it earth is. is also really helpful too. Uh, and so the. What what Boris found and what has been replicated in a couple other settings is typically organizations that chase stars don't extract the value that they think they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and those stars usually have a structure and a team around them in, in their existing organization that are not, not often ported over to the new organization. And so the value that they were providing here is not as much um, sorry, in the, in the new organization is not as much in, in the old place. How you can say that more definitively is they also looked at times where you're hiring the star and the rest of the team. And then that star performs better in the new organization when their team is intact. So it's complicated. You, you can't hire the rest of the team without the star and do well. Um, when Michael Jordan retired, they didn't win. Right. But the rest of to also say it's Michael Jordan alone and that's it is also probably not accurate because he had a great second fiddle with uh, Scotty Pippen. He also had other Hall of Famers on that team as well. He had a Hall of Fame coach, right? There's all these other kind of support structures there too. So that's what um, your, your very pointed question. It's not really a cop out. It is it's both. <laughs> I love the idea. I think of like, an excellent answer, and I, I really appreciate you. Actually, that may have been my favorite topic we've ever covered the entire podcast. Was you answering? So I appreciate you playing along there, Ethan. Well, you, you talk about like uh, dropping in like an entire intact team. Like you're already talking about like existing communication structures. You everyone has like an implicit understanding of like how to communicate. So if like you took like the I don't know 94 Bulls and just stuck them into. Uh, I don't know Phoenix Suns. They'd be very successful, despite the fact that you have. Uh, upper level management, mm-hmm. making decisions, this sort of thing. And we, we saw the same thing with like, say Tom Brady, Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft. Yeah. Like there was the debate, like, which is better? Is it Tom Brady or is it Belichick? Or is it, you know, Kraft making these decisions and, you know, finding new talent across the league. Yep. 
well, we, we kind of saw a little bit how that shook out when the whole like party kind of broke up. Yep, sure did. Um, Tom Brady joined an excellent team that had a lot of uh, a lot of pieces. <laughs> uh, Belichick, you know, without someone at the helm, has not done that bad. He's still an excellent coach. Um, so yeah, that's that's what makes all these questions really interesting. There's something to be said about having a great supporting cast around you, right? Like, how do you be well, great? Have great people around you. You know, the um, the thing I was, I was going to go back to is if you've ever worked with someone where you and the other person just sync together. Oh, yeah. You can be 100% honest. There's a lot of things you don't need to say. They just know implicitly what's happening. Like, that's hard to replicate. And if Would you, you say they had employee voice, perhaps? I don't know. Yeah. Just, just throwing it out there. I'm more than certain that Michael Jordan spoke up a lot. And... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a jerk. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we could talk about this for a really long time, sports and saber metrics and this sort of thing. But, uh, Ethan, you want to do some uh, rapid fire, five questions? Shoot, let's go. Okay, these are random. I'm not going to lie. These are random. Okay, feel free to participate too, Cole, if you feel like it. Uh, Ethan, what is your favorite font? My favorite font? I, um, <laughs> Times New Roman, because that's what I have to submit my papers with. I hear that. I hear that. I've got to find it really quickly. I actually don't know the name, but I know what it is. DM Serif Display. DM Serif Display. Love it. It's really good. I like uh, Futura myself, but like, like Ethan, like everything's done in time needs Roman. What are you going to do? Uh, okay. This is more conceptual. Hey, do you zone out when you're in a meeting and you tell someone, if someone says like, hey, Ethan, that's a really good question. Cause like, you're just like kind of basking in your own like greatness of asking a great question. <laughs> Wait, so do I zone out when I do that? I like okay, so I'll put it this way. I'll I'll make I'll make it personal. Like when when I'm in a meeting, I ask somebody like a question and they say, That's a great question. I just kind of like for a moment, let's like kind of bask in my own glory of asking a great question. Uh, I may have a, a bit of a cynical view on this, being a, a a professor in front of the classroom. And when a student asks you a question and you go, That's a really good question. <laughs> That's both one, very functional and instrumental because it makes that student feel fantastic. Secondly, though, it buys me time to think about what the hell I'm going to say in response to that. And so, <laughs> yes, but then there's always that little inkling in the back of your head. Uh, Cole, any thoughts? Yeah, that's a really great question, Scott. Okay, yeah, I figured. I, figured. I feel so good right now. I feel so yeah. good. Uh, Ethan, what's the best mechanical pencil lead size? I have no idea. <laughs> it has been... Uh, since I was in high school, since I've used a mechanical pencil. Okay, is, that's fair. Is dot is dot two a uh, size? I I I haven't used it since elementary school, but I remember dot two for some reason. Uh, you talking about like a number two pencil? Let's see. No, I think I you used... dot two. Wasn't there like dot one, dot three? Like I feel like there were gradients. You, you got your point uh, five millimeter. You got your point seven millimeter. Uh, and I think there's like okay, a point nine I'm, I'm millimeter for, for cavemen out there. But like, yeah. I mean, like, to this day, I still use a regular pencil and I got my little pencil sharpener here. Uh, let's see. On an airplane, aisle or window? Uh, aisle if I'm going to sleep. Sorry, window if I'm going to sleep. 
I'll I'm um, about six six one. So I'll oh, yeah. uh, I'm gonna do work because I gotta stretch out. Yeah, I'm I'm about the same height, and I gotta do window because I get back of my head always gets hit when people are walking by on the aisle. Oh so yeah, I just grab I, don't, I don't go there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I, I never leave the aisle. Like I never use the restroom on the plane. And like the people that get the aisle, pardon me, the window, and just like constantly going over you. Like, what are you doing, man? I guess you could be a madman. Just like prefer the middle, just to mess with people. It's like know? a psycho. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's like really friendly, really friendly person there. Okay, a bit of a uh, conscientiousness question. Uh, when you're roasting marshmallows, do you like them burnt or like kind of golden brown? Oh no, golden brown. Yeah, yeah. You take the time and the effort. Yep. It's it's gotta be like almost melty. Like it <laughs> like you know it's done when it's golden brown and it's like gooing off of the the, the stick and it's almost oh, ready yeah. to fall. That that's the mark of a good marshmallow. I'm I'm going golden brown too, but I'll I'll point out the flaw of golden brown is usually there's lava on the inside, and so it looks so much better <laughs> than it tastes because you burn the inside of your mouth. Many mouths have been ruined by the marshmallow, the flaming exactly. marshmallow, right? I think we've exhausted this, right? <laughs> well, let's, let's do some nerdery, Scott. Uh, do you want to? You want to kick us off in the nerdery? Yeah, let's. Okay. Do you want more fun, or you want more uh, kind of informative? I guess, or just kind of IO specific. Let's let's do let's start with informative and, and sandwich some fun in. Does that work? Okay, I like that. So this article is uh, embracing these mistakes to build a learning culture. So essentially, the, the thesis of the article is that you should build a learning culture by modeling uh, the acceptance of mistakes. So you can actually uh, um, shit. I totally got off track. I have to cut some of this shit out. This is what having editing this rights is, looks like. <laughs> yeah, totally. So anyway, the organization should build a culture that is safe to make mistakes and leaders in themselves, they should model this and have a tolerance for mistakes um, and also develop a culture of learning. Well, the, the thing I took away from it in, in kind of the, the, when you're trying to build a learning organization, and I've seen companies struggle with the most was the second bullet about rewarding people for sharing knowledge. I feel like so many times in companies, people actually, not only do they not get rewarded, sometimes they even get punished oh, yeah. for sharing knowledge and breaking down silos. And I, I see that from my experience has been the biggest detriment to organizations trying to do this effectively. Yeah, um, so uh, I'll, we just hired an assistant professor. He started um, this past uh, August with us. And he, if you, if you all know Adam Grant, he's a Adam Grant student. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so in this, in this study, he was looking at how to, what leaders can do to create psychological safety. And one of the, like this article points out, one of the kind of prevailing notions is if a leader gets up and this admits mistakes, expresses that type of vulnerability, then others will kind of feel free to do the same. Um, what he found was a little bit different than that. Um, if you get up and exp express you've made a mistake, that can also um, kind of signal that you have no idea what it is you're doing. Um, and that doesn't always uh, engender the most confidence in, um, in a leader in that way, especially if you do that kind of routinely. 
Instead, it's a subtle shift in framing. What he suggests is that uh, leaders should get up and convey what they want to work on. And so when you say these are some areas that, you know, either past performance feedback or what have you, where I've kind of struggled. And so going forward, this is an area that I, I would like to, to work on and improve. Now you're kind of stating very explicitly like what your direction is, where, where you want to go. And you're inviting other people to kind of help you along that journey. And, and he has found that, that that in and of itself, not necessarily the mistake part, but expressing an intention for where you want to go in the future, that that's what really um, creates that, that sense of safety. I, I appreciate that so much because like when you're trying to do something new, like by definition, there is no blueprint and there's yep. going to be some missteps along the way. And uh, just a tolerance and acceptance of that is what allows you to progress. And if you take, as I say, because otherwise, if you point out mistakes, then it becomes like a critical thing. Like I, I'm going to catch you making a mistake instead of, hey, we're on this journey, and my my intention is to get better. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, the the whole idea of psychological safety is just critical to this. So people need to be able to, you know, share their ideas. And that, that's what really creates an integrated workforce overall, just the ability to share their voice and all this sort of great stuff. Yeah. One, I want to bring it home to people analytics here for a second too, because people analytics for the most part is a pretty new field other than if you don't consider like the hundred years of like I psychology research that's out there. But I'm, like a lot of these things, if you're a team, Sometimes if you're doing something new or experimental, it might be the first time it's ever been done at any organization ever. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I see teams buttressing up against is sometimes they only want to do something if they've seen someone else do it before and they just want to kind of copy that. And I don't know if it's if it's fear or if it's, you know, lack of psychological safety or just a lack of or a risk aversion or whatever it may be. but how how would you like what advice would you give to organizations who are looking to overcome that in saying do take the chance do you know do 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 the project that no one's done before or like i don't, I don't know what what advice right. would you give so I, I think a lot of this kind of goes back to your your goals as an organization so what what are you trying to accomplish in launching this new thing um if it's you know culture setting that we are we want to embrace trying new things and experimentation and you know scott you mentioned before an organization that you know is so hesitant to do anything new that you know it just becomes slow like if it if it if it's the culture building type of goal that you have then doing this in a very public way and inviting people to contribute to that process and uh, setting expectations that there's going to be some missteps and you want help to improve the thing can very much be a culture setting thing. Um, in contrast, other folks, uh, other organizations launch new things because they need to implement something now. And they're actually not mm. interested in inviting feedback about how it could be done better or worse. This is the implementation. And if the, there's going to be lots of comments pointing out these mistakes, here's new ideas for doing things better, it could actually be counterproductive and quite demotivating for that team that has just launched the thing because that, that wasn't the point. It was just to you know, solve a particular you know, for a solution and then 
you know, you're on to the next next thing. So um, I always go back to with a lot of this kind of stuff when you're talking about launching new stuff, whether it's a policy or um, uh, a new product, a new service, a new practice that we want to have in the organization. What is specifically what is the goal and what's that hierarchy? Is it a product launch by such and such date, in which case you may not want a whole lot of feedback if you're on a particular timeline? Is it culture setting? Is it building something and creating something new in which you do want a lot of brainstorming? You, you have to kind of right size how you're implementing it to match your intended goals. I, I love that. It, it really comes back to the mission and vision of the organization, like whether are they risk forward or risk adverse in this sort of thing. And you're so right. There's been times when I've brought an idea or even like like a small prototype to the team. And it's like all of a sudden you get like 40 different opinions and it turns into something that isn't doesn't reflect what it was in the past yeah. or like what it was intended to do, try to serve everybody. And it just doesn't serve anybody. I mean, one of the challenges that a, a lot of leaders face, um, most of the time, most organizations, the struggle is to get people to just feel safe enough and that it's worthwhile enough to speak up. Yeah. But if you solve for that and you're an organization of any size, very quickly, you're going to open the floodgates and have thousands of ideas come across your way. And there's no possibility of you implementing them all. And there's no possibility of those ideas all being aligned around one vision. Mm -hmm. And so it's a delicate balance between inviting feedback enough that you can take advantage of some different perspectives and insights to improve, but not so much that it becomes um, uh, almost a handicap for taking any action because you're overwhelmed with too much feedback and too many ideas to actually move forward. I think this is the, the balance that... Uh... So, so you wrote the paper, uh, don't let being new stop you from sharing your ideas. And this is sort of the balance that struck. So when you're new, the the amount of information that you can share with the team is just so great. Just totally new information interjecting from outside. Uh, Soda and Bert 2016 talk about this quite a bit. But there's also like certain like crystallized teams that are already set in their ways and may not even accept this new information no matter how good it is, just because like yeah. there's resistant to it. Yeah, you, you always have to, I don't know, um, build the relationship, learn the culture. What are the norms? How do you communicate? What's mm -hmm. an appropriate way to challenge the team? Like there's all that element. And when you're new, you don't know all that stuff yet. When you're new, you also, that's also a really important time because you don't know that stuff yet. And so you can see where, the norms and the ways and these different routines are just not functional. And so it's, it's a delicate balancing act. There's so much with this type of um, phenomenon around, you know, speaking the truth, being honest at work comes with a lot of tension because now you know people's honest feelings about things and you have to deal with those ramifications. You know, if, if you have a, a spouse at home who says, do I look good in this outfit? You are oh, now no. faced with the tension of how <laughs> truthful do you want to be in delivering that feedback? And, you know, there's a value and a virtue in being honest. It, it's also will create some conflict and some tension there. So it's not always the best thing. 
I've never experienced that, Ethan. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um, well, Scott, I feel like we we have an, another um, article coming up that I think is a. <laughs> I found it quite funny, but uh, I don't know. Do you want to share? Oh, I assume you're talking about uh, uh, this Taliban article. So, like, file this under, like, you hate to see it or life comes at you fast. I don't know what you want to call it. But, you know, from 2001 to 2020, the Taliban were just, like, wreaking havoc across Afghanistan. You know, there's they've got their rocket launchers. They're, you know, uh, they got their snipers up in the field. Well, uh, the U.S. left uh, uh, the capital city and the Taliban rolled in. And, hey, you know, uh, life comes at you fast because, like, now we're getting reports that these guys are not so happy sitting at desk jobs, nine to five, uh, trying to actually run the companies. So now they're filing their TPS reports and, like, they're sitting in front of their computers all day. They're having cultural strifes. Now they got to deal with uh, female workers. You know, one of these guys is, like, really relatable. He's like, I just sit in, like, uh traffic all day I, I i can't afford rent in the city so i gotta travel all this time this other guy says he's addicted to twitter because he's sitting in front of his computer so i mean with the u.s military could not bring down the taliban but Deeper the nine to five did. job did employee <laughs> burnout can <laughs> the real you know the real villain out there you know what one of the things that i always tell people on my teams is Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is to get exactly what you wanted. And I think this is one of those cases. Oh, absolutely. I love the fact that uh, working in cubicles from nine to five is worse than warfare. (laughs) This is like uh, Afghanistan office space. So we need we need like a movie where they're like Taliban, like in the office and like Lumberg's like, hey, you know, why didn't you clock in on time? (laughs) it also like screams like what kind of like io or management work could take place like obviously they're gonna have like cultural issues they're having like inclusion issues with like trying to interact with new employees they're having selection issues these people are bored they're not ready they're not made for like desk jobs all these sort of things could take place yeah i can already see it now like two years from now they're they're going to be having the in-person versus hybrid versus remote debate (laughs) by the taliban and you know like like all the things that we're experiencing already it's like got to balance autonomy with you know what you got to actually get done oh well overbearing bosses overbearing bosses i love it i I think we've milked (laughs) that one enough scott I think we could go on for quite a while. We really I think we could too. I think we can really get over our skis a little bit there too. <laughs> but um, I so I got one more article. But before I before I tee it up, so this is another one from Dr. John Sullivan. We've discussed quite a few of his on the podcast before, and I'll I'll issue a challenge to any of our audience members: if you are a connection of John Sullivan's, please get in touch and make an introduction because I can't find a way to get in touch with them. I want to I want to get him on the podcast sometime. But so he's written an article in, within the context of what's been going on recently. We've seen a lot of cuts to recruiting teams, and so the title is: Does your company gain competitive advantage from recruiting? Can you prove it to skeptical executives? And he, he makes some good points in here about, you know, your company's business results will improve if you're able to prove this out. You know, you're, you, you need to increase your team's ability to improve their measurement. 
But one of the things that he talked about in here, which I had never considered before, I'm sure people that are more in this space have thought about, is he he brought up this concept of showing your advantage of your net talent gain. So if you're an organization and making a list of maybe your top five or 10 competitors and showing how many of those competitors are net taking talent from you versus how many are you actually taking from them and creating that as like a metric to show the effectiveness of your employer brand or your ability to pay competitively or your employee value proposition, whatever it may be. I thought this was a really interesting concept, mm. especially with how talent intelligence has been such a hot topic recently. So I wanted to bring that up and say, you know, are there any areas where you've seen recruiting's ability to show its relationship to competitive advantage or any things like net talent gain that might be a novel way of doing this? Um, I actually, so I have many more questions coming out of this article than I had like solutions. So you're asking sure. for, um, you know, metrics of success right out of the gate. And I, I don't know if I, if I have a bunch there. So let's go back to the net talent game just for a sec. Um, how do you define who, who's in your competitor set? Because I know for us, you know, I, um, we have about 750 employees in the business school in, in total. And among like our uh, academic advising coaches and career counselor coaches, you know, they give advice to students about what classes to take or career advice, um, things they need to do to prep on their resumes in order to get a job. We have constant churn and turnover among those groups, but we're not losing them to St. Edwards University also here in town or Texas A&M or University of Chicago. We're losing them to Tesla, to Whole Foods, to Southwest Airlines. And so the notion of having, you know, five to seven organizations that are in our competitor set, it's really hard for me to define and then figure yeah. out what those types of mm -hmm. ratios are because the talent I'm losing are going all over the place. Um, uh, you know, touching back to where we were talking about before, Austin's booming. It's growing like crazy. And there's lots of companies with lots of jobs. And so that, that, that gave me, that gave me pause and a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, the second thing that kind of popped to mind, I love y'all's take on this too. How, how do you measure, like, what is a successful hire? Um, yeah. I, I'm working with a tech company right now and their whole kind of new refreshed set of vision and goals for this year is around productivity. And so then I asked, well, how are you measuring productivity? And I got a bunch of blank stares back. <laughs> so like, if you don't know how you're measuring productivity and performance, how do you know if you're grabbing good talent? Yeah, that's so right. Like, so recruiters, uh, often the metrics are like time to fill a position or like how, how many recs do they have open? This sort of thing that doesn't necessarily seem aligned with the overall objectives of the organization, i.e. like quality of hire. And that opens up like a whole new like um, uh, criterion problem right there to your point, especially knowledge jobs where how do you compare what e even to like say software development engineers do, but in different sort of teams, like they're doing different sort of work, different sort of uh, task. And like, how do you uh, make those equivalent? Uh, oftentimes it's like, you know, time to productivity. Once again, like, what does that actually mean? Uh, but I, I do like this idea of like, do we have like a net flow in the organization or do we have a net flow out of the organization with some sense of where are they going? 
because then you get like i don't know like cluster analyze them poor man factor analysis sort of thing and just like okay are they going to places that pay them a lot more or are they going to places that are a lot kinder you know a little better culture when it's funny you've uh brought this up ethan and and scott about quality of hire i uh i recently published an article about how to build a quality of hire framework but i think that the cynical take on it and both of you kind of touched on this is well, if you have the criterion problem on one factor and you just create 10 factors to measure quality of hire on, <laughs> how do you just have, and you combine all those together, does that net combination of all four criteria make it a better criteria or a worse criteria overall? And so that, that I think that's kind of the funny take on quality of hire all overall. Yeah. The, the other thing this makes me think of, you know, when you talk about the net, net flow. So mm-hmm. those you're hiring in versus uh, people that are, are, are going out. The, there are a, a number of studies on, you know, are, is all turnover bad? And yeah, obviously yeah, letting yeah. go talent mm-hmm. that isn't particularly great is, is easy to say that's, that's a good kind of attrition. Um, but there's also a lot of work on even when you let go or, you know, good talent moves on, it can still be a good thing for the, um, you know, for the old organization. Yeah. Uh, so for us, you know, if we lose uh, a career counselor to, um, to Tesla and they become a recruiter for Tesla and then come back and recruit our students, that's actually a net win for us. They know our entire recruiting system and they know how to get into it. They know how to access our students in a way that other recruiters may not because they haven't worked here before. And so like that type of attrition, even though we're losing great talent, can still bring us some net benefit at the end. Um, We also see this a lot in consulting firms. So as consultants move on, they typically go to their client organizations and then send business back to that consultant. Yeah, (laughs) look, consulting firm attrition is called business development. Exactly. You know? <laughs> I mean, there's something you said about like le- leaving a good taste and a uh, departing ways with someone in an amicable fashion to the point where they, they really love the organization become like recruiters out in the world too. And to your point, like even someone that has been at the organization, you know, 10, 15 years, uh, when they leave, despite they take a whole lot of like organizational knowledge and all this sort of stuff, like you do get an influx of fresh ideas from the new person coming in. And uh, that can move the business along um, its path. Yep, absolutely. Mic drop. Well, there you go. Yeah, you made a really good point, Scott. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel really good now. I'm I'm basking in my own sort of greatness at this point. Yeah, we went full <laughs> circle on that. Well, Ethan, you've been a great guest. I, I feel like we've had an awesome conversation. I've learned something today. And, you know, we got to laugh a few times. So that's that's about all you can ask for on one of these podcasts. So thank you for being such a great guest. But yeah. before we give you the final words, Scott, any departing words to Ethan? Ethan, super great to meet you. I'll come down to Gregory Gym. We'll uh, throw up Wanna. some hoops. Definitely, man. Uh, yeah, great, great to meet you. Well, th- thanks for having me on. Um, it was awesome to reconnect with you, uh, Cole, and to connect with you uh, for the first time, Scott. Um, and I suppose the last thing I'll say is I, I'd encourage y'all to be a little bit more honest at work. Just think about how to socialize your ideas a little bit better. And um, there's there's lots of uh, chance for success in that. So we'll appreciate it.
Oh, if anything, I need to do less of that. There <laughs> <laughs> we uh, are. But this has been great. So you've been listening to Directionally Correct, uh, People Only Likes podcast with Colin Scott and Ethan Burris. Thanks for joining us, Ethan. Thank you. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orgnostic.